1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eamon Bell, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Thor Magnuson about his new book, Sonic Writing, Technologies of Material, Symbolic, and Signal Inscriptions, which was published in 2019 by Bloomsbury Academic. Sonic Writing is at once a sweeping survey of the techniques of sound and music making, both before and after the dawn of digital computing and a set of forward-looking strategies for thinking critically about our future relationship with new music technologies. By consistently thematizing the act of writing, Magnusson's book also forms a valuable contribution to contemporary media theory by calling attention to the rich history of inscription practices, from score writing and phonographic sound recording to programming synthesizer patches that have been so intimately connected with the shared creation and enjoyment of music. Thor Magnuson, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Iman. It's great to be here chatting with you.
1: Great. I'm I'm delighted to speak to you. Um, Thor, before we start get down to discussing um, sonic writing, I wonder if you would begin by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Yeah. So um, I'm a musician um, with a background in music, and I studied philosophy. I am now a professor in music at the University of Sussex, where I'm the head of the music department. And I'm a founding member of the Experimental Music Technologies Lab that we run there. Uh, We do research in new music technologies, in AI, in machine learning and uh, instrument making, and we study the role of instruments in, in contemporary music through experimentation that is both in the lab and on the stage. Uh, and we do a lot of theoretical investigations into the role of new musical instruments on on music making. So my background is really these three things, music, philosophy and technology. I'm a programmer, uh, so I've been working on um, making um, music software in the past two decades. Um, and I like to think about music as applied philosophy, really, as. Um, as a, a workshop or a lab where we can think about human-machine interaction, about uh, human expression through instruments through technology, and the role of new digital technologies in the way that we think uh, about all kinds of things. But um, really, the, the the channel for me is is music. Um, so. In my work, I, I do these things, I perform music, I, I write about music, I make musical instruments. And I really see music as a way of, of thinking about um, technology, uh, about philosophy, and uh, human expression.
1: Great, thank you. Yeah, no, and those are themes that I think we'll hopefully return to towards the end of um, our discussion as we look towards the closing chapters of your book, where that theme I think comes out the strongest, where we think very concretely about, for example, the position of music in the education curriculum in a, in a technologized society. Um, so I'm pleased that we've, we've signaled that now. Um, but before, um, before we actually dive into the content of the book, I'd like to ask you, could you just very briefly describe how you came to write this book? So I understand that it was part of a a larger multi-year project that involved not just the writing of the book, but also a number of events and collaborations with fellow musicians and uh, thinkers about music technology. So I wonder if you could just briefly uh, let me know how you um, came to write the book and, for example, some of the context that you had in the run-up to its publication with those creative artists.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I got funded by the UK um, Arts and Humanities Research Council, the HRC, for two years um, for a project called Sonic Writing. My intention was really the key output of the research project is this book. I wanted to write this book. But um, in order to buy myself the time and the focus to research on it, I applied for this um, research project. And as part of it, I um, I got in touch with and collaborated with colleagues around the world on running symposia and conferences and workshops that are related to the parts of the book, the five parts of the book, which we'll talk about later, I suppose. But um, I was interested in kind of running events where I would involve people in asking the questions that I'm dealing with in the book uh, to kind of have a dialogue and a discussion around the themes of, of each of the parts um, of instruments and notation, phonography and digital media. Um, so I worked with um, institutions such as STEIM in Amsterdam uh, on new musical instruments, um, IRCAM in Paris. On um, new notation, we had a symposium there. Uh, we run a conference with colleagues in in my experimental music technologies lab. We run a conference at Sussex on uh, live interfaces, and I had residencies at San Matt in Berkeley and CMC in Columbia University in New York on um, themes of of new musical instruments. So I was quite fortunate to be able to spend two years uh, thinking about the book, researching it, and involve, you, you know, involve people into the project, interviewing people. I interviewed quite a lot of people, so I was lucky to be able to interview people like Roger Lynn, James McCartney, um, Pamela Z, Laurie Spiegel, um, Claudia Molitor, Uh, Gottfried, Willem Reis, and many other people who kind of inform the way that I think about instruments and musical expression
1: in the book. Wonderful. So it seems like the book itself then is backed up by, you know, not only your own practical experience, but the shared practical experience of the people you've interviewed. And I think that makes it for a very compelling read, especially when we start to think about some of the theoretical implications of, of the framework that you outline in the book. Given that you mentioned the structure of the book just there briefly, I wonder if you could, before we dive into the contents, briefly just outline how the book is organized.
0: Yeah, so um, the book is really about our contemporary musical instruments, which of course are quite digital in nature, um, at least partly. But I was interested in looking at uh, the digital instruments and we often think that there's some kind of a rift between the analog and the digital and everything is new and fresh with the digital. But I, I wanted to take a look at where our design decisions come from, what kind of uh, models and metaphors and patterns of, of kind of production we are implementing in our digital technologies. So for that to happen, I, I felt that I needed to look into past musical technologies um, and where, we're, where the traces of our design decisions come from. So, so the, the, the three first parts of the book are really, um, the first part is called material inscriptions. And here I look at the, how um, musical instruments are designed and how they evolve, and how we talk about musical instruments in our in our culture um, from from Greek mythology through the medieval times to kind of seventeenth century new science uh, empirical science and how how all these kind of um, evolve evolutionary kind of traces, how they found what we do today. I do the same with uh, symbolic inscriptions, and that's the name of the part two of the book, uh, where I'm looking at um, how we write music in the, in various forms, you know, in the, as theoretical constructions, as notation, uh, how we write through code, or into machines, um, um, and how the, how these kind of notational systems become part of our digital. Uh, technologies, and the third part of the book is called signal inscriptions so if the second is about symbols, uh, we then move to the signal inscriptions and that's um that's where we are not uh, symbolically writing sound down but we are uh, actually taking the signal itself and uh, writing it down first of course, with all kinds of uh, needles on on suit on glass suit or on wax cylinders, then on wire, on um, tape uh, and then on digital media and so on. But here, uh, with this kind of way of writing, of course, this is the foundation of what we do with um, uh, digital technologies. So the fourth part of the book is called digital writing. And that's really where I take the previous three parts and look at how they inform uh, digital musical instruments and digital systems, software, uh, digital audio workstations and so on. Um, and then in the fifth part I'm kind of looking at how digital technologies change the way we make music, how we think about music and how we uh, teach music and how a future of our music making is going to change with uh, new technologies such as machine learning, deep learning, uh, crowdsourcing um, and the democratization of music making in general. So I find that quite interesting. So I, the, the fifth part is kind of moving the scope from the past and into the future
1: projecting a little bit. Great, thank you very much. So. Before we start launching into that structure, I wanted to press you and ask you on the title of the book. And I wanted to ask precisely and kind of briefly, what do you mean by sonic writing?
0: Yeah, um, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I've always been interested in seeing music technologies whether it's a violin or piano, uh, digital software, controller of some sort, as things that are embedded with knowledge, with theory. So they're, they're kind of epistemic things, epistemic tools. Uh, the way we design them, we project and we embed our thinking into the technology itself. So the piano keyboard or the piano, for example, has a certain tuning, equal tempered tuning. And it's divided into an octave. Um, sorry, the octave is divided into twelve half steps. So already there is a music theory uh, inscribed into the into the design of the of the instrument itself. Um, so I think all our things, all our kind of tools for music making, they are designed with theory. And it's almost as if we're writing our music through making the instruments. This is the way I, I see it. Um, the instruments become ep- epistemic tools. So, when I I've been kind of studying philosophy of technology for for some time, and um, of course, the, one of the key protagonists in that field is Bernard Stiegler he's got this notion of grammatization. Um, and grammatization is the, is the process where we turn continuous data, um, extendable things into separate entities. And we cut them down, we make them discrete, and we define them. We name them, split them up, we give them kind of signification as, as unique entities. So human language, uh, human tools, mathematics, etc. They're all examples of grammatization, and grammatization, in essence, is is writing. You know, it's about um, ex, um, extending uh, your your thoughts or or cutting things down, defining them. And I feel that if we look at at instruments, if we look at um, musical uh, notation and um, phonography, or signal inscription. These are all inscriptions. These are all ways of cutting the world down, putting them in, putting into categories, you know, into pitch um, spaces and so on. So for me, it, that's kind of the basis of why I use the term writing, sonic writing, so broadly um, about things that um, are, you know, fra- ra- ranging from, uh, musical instruments to to um, signal inscriptions and and of course now with ai and and uh, automatic music uh, comp- uh, composition as well
1: thank you yeah so i think that's important to signal straight away this idea of grammatization and the dependence on stehler um it's would it be fair to say that tools of our techniques or techniques of sonic writing they exteriorize music or sound in some way. It's the application of that knowledge to something outside of ourselves. It's something distinct from ourselves that we can use. I think you you use the word cognitive offloading in, in a different location. This idea that we can take some of the burden off our mental representations of, in this case, sound by transposing them or transcribing them or transducing them onto another object. So it's important, right, that this object... These objects of sonic writing are, are in some way outside of ourselves. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, precisely. Um, externalization is a is a good term that you brought up there. It's about putting things outside ourselves uh, to have an external reference, like a like a ruler almost. So I've often taken the example of the of the bone flute, you know, a forty thousand year old instrument found in a in a German cave. <clears throat> um, that by making holes into the flute in certain locations you're basically creating a a scale system. Um, And I don't know if that's uh, through experimentation or how random those holes were put into that flute, but at least when the flute is there, the flute is gonna exist outside uh, ourselves. It's a reference of music theory. It's, it's, it's got the music in it and you can then imagine generations of people being born into the community of that cave and kind of learning and adhering to the theory that has been inscribed into that musical flute. Um, so by extending that, we can extend that to more kind of recent uh, and diverse, uh, sophisticated musical instrumental culture that we have today with uh, all kinds of different uh, musical instruments. But These are all external kind of um, storage devices of our music theory and the way that we uh, have uh, developed our capacity to make and think about music.
1: Great, yeah, and in terms of us as scholars who have to deal with this these kinds of artifacts, if our attention is now being turned to objects, um, you you make reference to what's sometimes called the material turn in musicology, which emphasizes the role of these artifacts, actual physical objects, in musical culture. Um, So I'm thinking of Emily Dolan has labeled it, but people like Alex Redding, whose work resonates with your description of, of the piano there. Um, So we've already kind of come to understand this as potentially a new priority for musicology. But I think from my reading, at least in the introduction, you're wary that the risk that we might make too much attention on the the physical materiality of music making and forget or fail to take into account the processual elements of how these technologies are used and how they develop over time. Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah,
0: I guess... um... People's research projects, of course, are different. And um, you might have an anthropologist or or a a human-computer interaction specialist studying the object as it is in a particular moment in time. But then you might have a historian kind of looking at the evolution of the thing. Um, So um, yeah, you might be right that we are kind of um, forgetting a little bit about the evolution of the instrument. Um, I think when we look at musical instruments as material objects, of course they they evolve. We often kind of make a stop of them in time, like so. The the instrument itself stops evolving at certain time. So, um, uh, but but then it's. The instrument itself might stop, but then the culture around this is continually evolving. Um, so you might see how the guitar, for example, uh, has evolved incredibly over the past centuries. And then it's used and how it's used in different cultures, like uh, classical musical culture, flamenco, jazz, rock, metal, and so on. Um, so the instrument itself is continually evolving. Uh, and you might also consider how we, as uh, performers of musical instruments, how our relationship to the object is changing over the years that we play the instrument. So you might, you might interpret a certain piece or or, your, or certain um, with a certain instrument in one way, and then a decade later you have a totally different. Relationship to your instrument, and also to the musical um, piece that you're playing. Um, so, so we we have so many evolutions here: the, the the cultural evolution of the instrument, the material evolution of the instrument, and the subjective, personal evolution, how you relate to the the musical instrument. So, I I, th- I think you're right. It's it's really interesting to To focus on the procedural, on the process, on how the instrument is evolving over time,
1: yeah. And I think you emphasise that in your introduction, with the introduction of the concepts like um, er- ergodynamic or ergoforce. This erg metaphor, this erg prefix, doing a lot of that uh, work of suggesting something that's in action, something that's not. Uh, stable, something that's dynamic in, in some sense. Um, is that is that a fair characterization of how you intend those terms to be used? Or if not, could you just let us know briefly what you understand by ergodynamics of musical instruments? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. It's it's a fair um, characterization that you bring up here. So ergodynamics, ergo is work. It's the Greek um, root for work. Dynamics is, is um, function. So I was... I felt that we were lacking a term in the way that we uh, talk about our musical instruments and their potential. Um, in HCI, we often talk about um, affordances, but affordances are quite limited, and they don't have the cultural and the historical as part of its notion or the aesthetic, the kinesthetic. So I wanted to come up with a term I felt, and I asked people during my <laughs> Research project. What are the terms that we we have to discuss these things? And um, yeah, people talked about you know affordances, constraints, um, um, and I met some game designers who t- came up with you know they they mentioned the term gameplay. So in 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 game studies, so you talk about the gameplay of a of a computer game. <clears throat> And that's the experience that you have whilst you're playing the game, the way that you get deeper into the game, the way you perceive the game and, and the, the feeling of, of playing it, You know how you, how you get into the flow when playing it, how you control your avatar or whatever you're doing. So I felt I've, I've get the, the notion of gameplay was quite interesting here. Um, but we don't have that in music and i and i, and I thought okay we, we need we need a term where you go beyond the kind of focus on the object or uh, or the subjective kind of experience of playing it uh, where you go go beyond this distinction of uh, subjective and object um, and um, where you go into a, a kind of phenomenological relationship to the instrument but also looking at it from its cultural uh, context and historical um, evolution, as well as um, the kind of design aesthetics and and kinesthetic perception of the the object. So that's what I called ergodynamics. And uh, related to that, there are some other other terms like ergomimesis, how you might take a certain design um from analog instruments and try to implement that in in digital instruments, so the, the notion of mimesis here is uh, imitation so how you imitate work from one domain in another domain. so these are terms that I come up with um, in order to be able to talk about these things and I felt that we were lacking this vocabulary in 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 this field that I'm working in. It's a field often called NIME, New Interfaces for Musical Expression. We have a uh, conference about it. We have publications, um, university courses that deal with this. But uh, yeah, I'm kind of contributing this vocabulary to this um, field of research.
1: Wonderful, great. And I think it's when it starts to interact again with music history, we start to see that not that the materialist viewpoint is, you know, to be replaced, but it can be complemented by a view that takes into consideration how the uses of a, an artifact that seems identical, materially identical, can be used in different contexts. You mentioned the flamenco guitar versus, for example, maybe the use of an identical instrument in a jazz or a classical context.
0: Yeah, Obviously, I think, the identity of yes, a beautiful example of that is is the way that we have uh, the fiddle and the violin. Uh, it's the same material object, but two completely different instruments.
1: Right. I, I, that was a great example for me, too. That's an example of what you call an ergotype, right? Hmm. The kind of tropes or, or, or characterizations of an instrument that can be uh, drawn out by its use and not necessarily just by its material affordances. Yeah. Um, I wonder then we might move on to the body of the book and deal with the first section you mentioned, which deals with material inscriptions. We've already touched on this idea that instruments themselves contain musical knowledge um, and that kind of containment of musical knowledge that they have is due to the fact due to the way that they're designed due to the kind of deliberate in some cases um very very intentional layout of the instrument in a particular way you alluded to the the equally tempered piano the bone flute these are all uh, examples but it's it's a category of thinking about music and instruments that Transcends the analog and the digital distinction. Something I get a sense that you're keen to, if not break down, worry a little bit. So I wonder, could you give us an example of a couple of instruments, musical instruments or, or tools of sound technology that demonstrate their epistemic function clearly? And, and maybe if you could think about drawing both on analog and digital examples. Maybe a digital example to begin with, because we've we've already talked a bit about the um, the bone flute and the the piano has this kind of function.
0: Yeah, I think maybe the first thing to mention here, because people people often um, think that when you say music technology, that we're here talking about some some computer, digital, you know, screen device with plastic knobs and so on. Uh, but I I do consider the bone flute uh, music technology. Um, uh, so anything that is kind of. Um, extended uh, like a prosthesis a hammer is a technology for building a, a house right uh, mm-hmm. or carpentry so um, the violin the bone fluid the piano these are all music technologies but as you say we in 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 digital technologies we we have a different situation because that's often where we have to imitate uh, the the analog or come up with something new and fresh, but it means that we are writing it, we're inventing it, we're, coming, we're defining it through the materiality of the digital. But if you think about, for example, the origin of, of a lot of uh, digital music software, you see that we are indeed imitating um, the acoustic and the electronic um, studios, for example, So we start with um, piano rolls um, as the the midi score um, with uh, uh, digital recording of audio. Suddenly we start to get uh, imitations of the tape machine, we have multi-track recordings. Uh, You have the mixer um, and all these things that uh, kind of imitate the the acoustic and the electronic um, technologies that we're used to so if we look at digital modern digital music or uh, digital audio workstations you have software such as logic or cubase or ableton live and these are often uh, softwares that focus uh, focus on on the timeline uh, there's a certain beats per minute setup by default, maybe 120 beats per minute. Uh, the fourth fourth time signature is there by default and a certain idea of the pitch space and um, how instruments are divided into, into frequencies and so on. This is all kind of implemented in the design of the software uh, for good reasons, um, the software designers are trying to make things easy and quick for the majority of users who just want to make um, the music that they're used to. It's a it's a marketing thing really if you want to market a software you want to market it in a way that you can say uh, wouldn't you want to have the you know the um, recording studio the professional recording studio in your bedroom you know that's a that's a good marketing line um so we have then all these things all these um, design tropes from the the non-digital world implemented into the into digital yeah. software um and this is what i called you know this is what i called epistemic functions We are defining our music technology, our music theory, the way we work um, through the design of our software. So um, we could say that this poses certain problems. The music becomes homogenous. We start to see cliches, certain effects are used too much and, and so on. But at the same time, People are always very creative. Um, That's the kind of nature of the human, to be creative and think outside the box. So, of course, today we have all kinds of um, open source music tools, um, software environments, programming environments that allow people to work with digital music technologies in a much more freer way um, than um, uh, is kind of, Projected onto us by um, the commercial companies, but since I mentioned Ableton Live, uh, the software, I could I could point out that they actually have now implemented the functionality of the Max MSP, which is a kind of an open you know, patching um, programming language, a graphical programming language, which drastically. Expands the, the musical um, language, vocabulary of Ableton Live. It takes it out of its kind of linear uh, or loop-based metaphors. And, and here you can start to get more algorithmic functionality or interactive instrument making as part of that system. So um, I think that's quite an interesting development where the commercial companies... Uh, is opening up the technology for the user to define their own ways of of thinking music uh, through developing parts of the technology um, through software development basically
1: and so you mentioned uh, just then you just mentioned um, max msp and that's an interesting point of contact just for this particular concern of how For example, digital technologies like the DAWs, the digital audio workstations, reflect the structure of pre-existing musical instruments. Max MSP has its own lineage, too. It looks very different from what people might consider to be a programming language. It emphasizes graphical programming, a kind of connecting musical units together um, in space. So it, too, also reflects maybe a different lineage, but again... It has this mimetic aspect to it right it imitates a, a kind of modular approach to building a synthesizer um i think that it's it's important to from what you said it seems to me that you believe that the turn to the digital has made things if not better at least more amenable to creativity would that be fair or am i putting too too much of a, a fine point on it there because digitality seems at least to afford a kind of creative flexibility that wasn't um, there I, I, I before. Maybe we'll get to this towards the end, but just your thoughts on that right now, specifically with respect to something like, again, the difference between um, a commercial doll like Ableton Live and, and something that's been used maybe in more um, experimental or even academic contexts, like Max MSP. Um, yeah, is it something the digital something helpful here in this situation?
0: Yeah, sure. We can we can kind of quickly talk about it now for and and more later. But um, I'm I'm quite neutral, really. Um, if you read my book, I might kind of in in some places I might be quite positive about um, certain trends or tech, uh, parts of digital technologies. Uh, but in other parts of the book, I might be a, bit, a bit more critical. Um, I think, um, you know, we humans, we evolve with our technologies, our culture change with the technologies that we have at hand. And at the moment, we have this these digital technologies and our music is, is being expressed through that, uh, largely. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's great that we are seeing a certain democratization of music. Um, Many of the commercial companies are thinking that they have an untapped market here with, um, because a lot of people, most people probably want to express themselves musically. They want to make music, but they don't have the skills or the, the kind of privilege of maybe having been able to study music at a young age. They don't feel that they can do it, but, but now maybe with these new technologies, the, the tools are being given to people to do these things so that's 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 positive but at the same time you might have a certain uh some some problems here uh i guess we'll talk about that when we go into discussing the fifth uh section of the book but um yeah i think in general i think it's all interesting um positive um Natural that we we evolve with the technologies that that are at hand. I mean, any any new technology that comes out will always be picked up by a musician, uh, and they will explore what kind of music can be done and made with that technology. You you see that all the time. Uh, for example, if you go to a conference like NIME, you know, at some point people are exploring you know web cameras or sensors gestural sensors or now it's a lot about machine learning and deep learning of, of gestures and um, movements and for yeah for mapping human gestures to sound yeah i agree
1: yeah, I, I think th- that's great
0: mm. sorry
1: I think that creative artists have always been willing to adopt new technologies, but it's important as well that we don't parrot maybe some of the more techno-optimistic lines that come from the manufacturers of these softwares. It's possible to be optimistic in the way that you are in the book, which is kind of a balance between, you know, looking forward and looking backward and um going all in on this idea that it, these new technologies are maybe the only or the, the required way to to produce techno- to produce music. Mm-hmm. You spoke a bit about um, breaking down or the possibility that technology might open up or democratize music to a constituency um, that it hasn't before. And it kind of leads nicely onto the second part of the book in a way, because one of the chief barriers to engaging with music is the kind of high demands of literacy that a certain kind of music composition makes on the individual that's recruited or enrolled into making it. Um, And in Western music tradition, at least that's been the kind of gateway of music notation. And notation, music notation, is one of the symbolic inscription techniques that you describe in the second part of the book. The received tradition of notation stretches back over 2,500 years with some of the most important developments taking place within the last thousand. Could you talk about some of the high points of this long history and how, for you, these high points reflect the ever-changing function of what you call symbolic inscriptions of music?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is obviously a hugely broad and um, and deep historical topic. Um, I think first of all, we we need to note that a lot of music has always been made uh, without notation or not. You know, so so when we focus on, for example, his, the history of music, we're we're looking at certain. Uh, music theory and um, musical scores that we have available, like maybe early Greek music theory or early Greek musical scores or Hittite scores that have been found in Babylonia. Uh, this is all very interesting, but around this, those are just minor snapshots of what is probably a very rich musical culture around it. Um, so when we talk about uh, uh, for example in in um, the 11th century Guido de Arezzo he came up with this staff notations staff notation um what we you know the predecessor of what we call common notation today uh, as an improvement um of the new, uh, new notation um we um what he is trying to do here is to fix Uh, pitch spaces and solve a certain problem he identified with the monks uh, singing out of tune so he wanted to standardize this Um, and I think when we start to look at Guido and and, uh, his kind of practice of of notation uh, medieval notation in Gregorian chants and so on we are looking at what, what um, historians are able to find and, and, and write down, but we're not looking at the music of the people, or the, you know, the music of the town squares or the music of the fields or in the workshops uh, around um, European medieval kind of society. So it's hard to kind of um, really look at, at musical history from the written music alone. Um, but I'm interested, yeah, in in this chapter of the book, this part, I'm, I'm interested in looking at how we write music because when you, the early Greeks, for example, they spent much more time and focus writing about music theory than, for example, um, 18th century music. And I think that's because they, um, they were interested in in the generativity of, of music theory so you focus on the theory and out of a music theory you could come up with lots of different instances of music um of course the romantic notion of the of the composer you know the, the author function and so on didn't exist then but um if you think about scarce media, you know, there wasn't enough papyrus around. Um, what would you rather do, write lots of music or write, you know, um, a comprehensive music theory that could sp- spawn out um, endless music? So it's almost like a compression format. To
1: Yes, I was continue. just about to say it's it's got that character of a kind of efficient representation of musical culture that doesn't use up as much space or as exterior, exterior, external media. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So with, with the kind of paper, with the printing press and so on, suddenly we start to get um, media that's easier to, to write on. And of course the, I mean, this hang connects with the evolution in, in literature, poetry, visual arts, and so on, but, and, and in romanticism, how uh, we start to emphasize the, the composer, um, the unique individual, the personal expression, and so on. That's not really the topic of my book, but, but it kind of hangs around, connects with how uh, the medium is changing, um, how the, the musical score and the technologies of of, of uh, distributing it and so on can change the way that we express ourselves musically.
1: And I think by now we've gotten to a point, especially as a consequence of some of the um, notational experiments of the 20th century, um, we've gotten to a point where the claim that you make, and I think this is really an interesting way to pick up on that theme of um, gameplay or the kind of ludic element. Um, You talk about now, maybe perhaps more than ever, music is kind of, quote, a world into which the performer enters um, more akin to a computer game than an MP3 file, end quote. So the idea is, I guess, the score is functioning more like an environment, certainly today and maybe even in the 20th century, um, than it ever has done, rather than being simply something like um, a container for musical instructions that we channel the quote-unquote music into. Um, I wonder, maybe with reference to 20 or 21st century developments, could you talk about that ludic element of score writing and, and symbolic inscriptions?
0: Yeah, um, so exactly. I mean, what was the function of, of musical notation in the past? The function was to to store music, to be able to distribute it, to share it, to commercialise it um, uh to send it from one part of the world to another. Um that so here we have a file format, the this the sheet music. Um but with recorded music suddenly that function is is less important. We now we can now record the music. The the composer can record it exactly as he or she wants it to sound and and share the recording. So what is the function of the score then suddenly uh, it's, it's changed drastically. Suddenly we, we start to experience the score more as an as an opening into creativity as a communication between the composer and the interpreter where the composer is basically creating a, a world or a system in which the interpreter enters and can discover things. Um it's a bit like how photography liberated um painting, you know so after photography we start to see impressionism expressionism and so on um, with phonography with the sound recording, suddenly the musical score becomes something that we can interpret more, something that we can kind of um explore through a more kind of unique um, personal uh, expression and also as as listeners as amateur music uh, musicians we can you know enter a certain piece and and discover it in a way that um, you don't discover when you listen to it through um, a sound recording I think uh, people who play uh, notated music um, are very familiar with that feeling that a piece that you might have been listening to for years by by practicing it on a, on a piano or a guitar or something, um, you really start to get a different relationship to the music through actually um, playing it uh, yourself. And I think that's quite beautiful and interesting. And I, I mentioned that in the book, how artists like um, Bjork and Beck started publishing their music in the form of sheet music Um, and if you think about it you know related to your question this is really the the ultimate interactive uh, musical um, gift to the listener Uh, these artists are opening their music up for all kinds of interpretations and and uh, interactive enjoyment or consumption which is of course production as well in this case so here, the the listener can listen to the music the way they want it to sound through playing it themselves. So we it's almost like we've closed a a circle here that the 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 musical score has become, uh, yeah, um, a world that you enter into and and you explore it a bit bit like a like a game, yes.
1: Mm, thanks. Yeah. And, and we've moved kind of almost silently onto the third part a little bit, which is the chapter or the section rather that deals with signal inscriptions, technologies of phonography, such as um, the phonograph, but also obviously magnetic tape and digital recording. Um, and we've alluded a little bit to how that may have had an impact on how composers viewed the role of their work and how performers have engaged with it. I wonder, would you be able to speak a little bit about how um, signal inscriptions have changed how we analyze music? So how the technical understanding of music can evolve or change or react to the ability to record, playback, rewind, um, loop, reverse sound, um, and even in some cases, I suppose, to visualize it, which was, I guess, one of the earliest applications of recording, not for playback, but for visualization. So could you talk a little bit about how you view the role of recording in relation to activities like music analysis or even music criticism.
0: Yeah. Um, so it's interesting with signal inscriptions, and you, you you ask about analysis. If you think about the musical score, you, that's kind of visual. You have you can. the score on the table in front of you and you can see the patterns of the score you can see the music as a kind of a in its linearity but it's it's spatial as well you know the the horizontal um, timeline and the visual shapes of the of the notes and so on all all these things are are kind of giving you information that is good for analysis with signal inscription, especially on the <clears throat> on the tape or on the um, uh, back cylinder or whatever, you you lose that you know you, you don't have the um, the symbolic um, nature of the sound anymore. So um, in a way, we we lose a lot. And you can then see there is a certain tension between um, the, 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 not, the, the, the notion of the literature, music as literature and music as, as um, recorded. And, and I guess that's sometimes we see that as a distinction between high and low culture or or um, classical and popular music. We even find it in universities as a distinction between you know, courses, BA, BA in music versus BA in music technology, that there's a certain kind of one focuses on the symbol, the other focuses on the signal. Um, and I think, I think it's very interesting to that nowadays the the way that we can analyze you, you ask about analysis of, of um, in digital musical media through, um, Algorithms I mean, uh, like fast Fourier transform and machine learning and so on, we're now able to to understand and represent pitch from the acoustic signal itself. So we're able to to classify, categorize, do musical analysis in a way that we could never have done in the past. Um, we're still in very early days here because even just um, a polyphonic kind of pitch analysis is still very complicated and um, we're not very good at it yet. We're quite good at monophonic, like uh, pitch analyzing a flute, for example. That's that's easy. But uh, to, to have a string quartet, for example, and uh, figure out which instrument is playing what, And uh, then uh, to notate a string quartet algorithmically is a huge problem, and that hasn't been solved yet. Um, With better um, uh, machine listening and machine learning, we will be able to to get there. But um, we're in early days here. So I think, I think, the, the symbolic and the, and the signal both have their pros and cons in, in terms of analysis of music, really.
1: Well, it certainly touches on something that we're about to talk about when we think about um, digital technology, which is this fourth um, and penultimate major part of your book where you tie exactly those um, categories together, symbolic inscriptions, signal inscriptions, and, and the material inscriptions that we talked about at the head of the interview. Together in your understanding of what digital technology can do, and digital here means, and you're quite explicit about this computational technology. So in some ways they're exchangeable. Um, Obviously they have their distinct histories, but you know computer-based creation, analysis, production of music. Um, And in that final, or in that penultimate part, when you speak about digital writing, you return to the topic of new instruments with this new knowledge in mind. These new categories. Um a category of instrument that um, sax of the horn or Sax Musical Instrument Classification Scheme kind of struggled to describe using this category of electrophones. I thought that was a nice touch to, to mention that, you know, there was an attempt to grapple with the role of electricity and electronics in music, but it clearly is not capacious enough to capture what's happening now. Um, so with that in mind, or, or with what we've talked about in mind from the previous three parts, can you describe how you understand how the relationships between composer, performer, and importantly, the instrument builder are shaping up in the 21st century. Um, Talking about maybe some of the advantages and maybe even the pitfalls of digitization and digitalization.
0: Mm, Yeah. I mean, music making in the 21st century is quite interesting because there's a feeling that everything has been done before composers and bands are kind of revisiting the past. People like uh, Mark Fisher have stated that all the music that we make today is something that could have been made in the nineties. Um, nothing new is happening, um, and we've got streaming access—you know—to the totality of musical history through, the, through a device in our pocket or our phone. Um, so people use the same tools, the same libraries, and so on. And I find this quite. Um, quite a limited uh, perspective on what is happening in in today's music i don't think the most exciting developments in contemporary music is happening the, through uh, streaming music on on online i think what is happening is is on stage you know people doing real experiments in all kinds of genres, um, I'm, I'm totally genre agnostic here, but I think we see a certain trend where the you, you mention um, the composer, the performer, the instrument builder. Um, I think a lot of people today they, they start to see themselves as producers you know they don't consider themselves as composers or, or performers. And what does the producer do? They produce certain things, they design certain things. So maybe the 21st century composer is one who who uses all these things. They perform their own pieces, but they also build their own instruments. And these instruments are, are not instruments that are, um, <coughs> sorry, they're not instruments that are supposed to be for general use. Um, like a guitar or something. Um, these are instruments that are maybe specific to that particular piece. So, so there, you know, the distinction between an instrument and a piece is kind of, um, blurred. We then can start to, and I mentioned this in the book, we, we, we move from a, from a world where we have composers that compose musical works, And here I'm thinking of uh, the the definition of a musical work, like Lydia Gur talks about it um, in her book. But um, we move from the composing the work to something where we invent systems. So the the composer becomes an inventor of a system that they then enter into, they play, or they have a, a performer play. Um, but the system then is often nonlinear. So a lot of the music that we see today is not uh, fully notated from A to Z. It's more like a like a like an open system that uh, the performer can enter into and um, explore through through performing it. Of course, this is nothing new. We had um, people in, you know, like Stockhausen and Cage and Feldman and others exploring these things with graphical notations in in the fifties and sixties. Um, but what we're seeing today is that these ideas of generativity, graphical notations, system making, like Tudor, of course, was developing his own. Music technologies through through electronics. Today, this has become so easy for us uh, composers. We have the workshop, we have the the kind of um, the electronic music studio, the soldering, the wood workshop. It's all in our laptop today. So it's really easy for us to to make our own things make our own instruments make our own electronics in a way that was very hard and often you had to be quite privileged to have access to these uh, music studios uh, labs research labs or or physical uh, work uh, you know workshops so in that sense, I'm, I'm, I'm quite thrilled about the potential of, of um, the computer music technology. And uh, if you go to um, contemporary music festivals or, or pop music festivals, and you, you're often seeing that artists are doing things on stage with audio visuals, with new instruments, with uh, interactive systems and so on, um, things are happening That wouldn't be able to uh, be conveyed through streaming media uh, of sound only. We can document it uh, with video, for example, but that's never going to be. That's only going to be a documentation. It's not going to be the the full experience itself of being part of something that is largely interactive, uh, immersive, often. Um, where spatiality and acoustics and and room is is part of the of the musical piece so i i think i think yes um presence uh, uniqueness uh, individual circumstances all these things are coming quite strongly into into um contemporary music so so I kind of play a little bit with Mark Fisher here, you know, and I try to point out that that the music that we should be thrilled about in the 21st century isn't music that is coming from Spotify necessarily, it's it's somewhere else, you know, we're finding it in, in different places.
1: And it may even require us to rethink what we understand the boundaries of music to be and musicality, not to... Not to take any up, uh, not to incur or, or to intervene on the territory of other multimedia arts, but it's clear from what you've suggested and clear from the book that as musicians use techno- technologies and tools that are used by multimedia artists, the multi the music productions and and the performances that we attend take on another character. You know, a, a multimodal. Um, it, most interdisciplinary character, thanks to the, the use of music technologies. And so, again, we start to see this theme that crops up a, a number of times in the book, the idea that our ontologies of what music is might be challenged by the technologies that we use. I think that's a really important lesson from this book. Um, I wonder, just as we close things down and we turn towards the conclusion of your book, um, this is the most forward-looking and perhaps not speculative, but you know, Thinking aloud about what the future of music and the role of music technology in society more generally has to look like, um, what do you consider to be some of the greatest challenges faced by um, the practitioner, the musical practitioner? So let's go with the idea that we've conflated now these roles of composer, performer, and instrument builder into the one person, just call them the music producer. Um, what do you consider the biggest challenges that that music producer faces um, in view of some of the newer technologies that are um, making their way to our laptops and, and to our kind of built environment more generally?
0: Yeah, um, this is a really interesting question, uh, but it's hard to answer it because when you say the music producer, this is such a broad um characterization. We could have people who are amateur producers who just want to make a little dance track for fun and share with friends. And then we could have someone who is really wanting to do something unique and, and expressive and cutting cutting away from, from um, conventional uh, music. Um, I think the challenges are really the what is embedded in our technologies we are soon gonna have machine learning as part of our technologies Uh, you're gonna have parts of your software that will be able to write music for you you can ask for help you can see what other people have been doing in this situation you could um uh tap something on on a a space bar of your laptop and and some kind of AI system would be generating the music around your tapping um, all based on on learning from previous examples from you know thousands, hundreds and thousands of of musical examples that are out there already. so our challenge is then you know where is where is innovation, where is creativity um, we are um you know how how do you become unique? But so, I'm not saying that machine learning is gonna be creating great innovative music um It is quite you know stupid technology in in essence you know it's just listening to what's already out there and it can imitate what is already out there um but that's actually what a lot of people do as well um a lot of the music that we hear. In, in radio and so on, is just imitation of of other music. So it's not like machine learning is is uniquely um, imitative here. But but I like this. I think this is interesting that we have this technology because I'm then able to you know in the classroom I'm able to ask my students if the machine can create the music that we listen to in the club, for example. Uh, how are you going to make something that goes beyond what the machine can do? You know, how are you going to be uniquely human and um, creative because the machine isn't really creative yet. So human creativity will always find ways um, or outlets to be original, you know, unique, fresh, fun. Uh, We will always be ahead of the AI. Um, But let's not forget also that uh, AI is our creation we created ai it's our artistic product you know and and we have just created a little kind of tool that helps us to be creative so i'm not i'm not so worried about music and musical creativity but but this is a challenge um for many different people from different reasons um i guess what is maybe of concern um, or more of a challenge is the, is the nature of our capitalistic system, you know, how certain companies are taking monopoly of, of the market. So we, we might then ask, you know, what, what is the future of the musical profession? We already know that musicians are having much tougher time today than three decades ago in, in you know, securing a proper living from their from their art um so this is this is a problem this is a difficulty um and we don't know how that's gonna evolve you know are we gonna have perhaps um uh you call it uh, citizen
1: pay oh universal
0: that's, basic income uh, universal basic income in the future that might well happen um What is the role of music and musical technologies then? Um, Will we not need music to keep sane, you know, to have something fun to do? Um, But this would obviously make it easier for for a musician to focus on their art. So, um, yeah, um, it's very, very difficult at this moment in time. coronavirus moment in time we're talking here and what is it early early april 2020 aren't we yeah we are faced with this and and um, uh, there might be some interesting solutions in in music and music technology but but um music of course as jacques Attali talks about is a often kind of um, a forerunner of uh, societal changes or like a petri dish of experimentation and we might see things in music today that might be implemented in other areas of of uh, human society at a later stage
1: and i think that's i think that's a moment for great hope and optimism uh, because as you mentioned the classroom context you can ask your students what does it mean to be creative in this new context and um, but of course they're learning how to collect a set of general strategies that they can apply outside of their musical relationship with the machine and and to their more general cultural relationship with the the machine, something that we all have to kind of grapple with over the next number of decades and indeed the rest of the century. Um so I I detect a note of optimism there in your work that even though, you know, creativity in the musical domain will strive, that also can be used and applied in other domains outside of the classroom. Yeah. I think
0: exactly if i mean if the machine can do a lot of these things um of course a robot could play the piano you know perfectly if you you know like pianolas (laughs) we already had that you know or was it prokofiev that played on a piano roll um his own pieces but but um, the machine can perform things perfectly but what then is then nature of the human you know where is where is the humanity unique and fresh and that's that's through you know improvisation through human communication through presence uh, being in the moment together as as a group of people in a certain context and i guess uh, well it's going to be interesting to see now that we are going to be spending two or three or four months uh, on streaming media talking with each other through um, video uh, chat software, what, what, right, uh, what will happen to musical performance when we are released back free into into the world? You know, um, aren't we gonna just love to sit in a in a musical uh, situation and and listen to music and enjoy the presence of of, of the moment? You know.
1: I think so. And I think that, that anyone who pays close attention to the kind of thousand year or over thousand year history that you paint in the book will realize that despite all, and this brings us back to something that we've talked about at the top, you know, despite the rich material history of these objects, scores, musical instruments, they imply a sociality, they imply their use, they imply their use over time, and they imply the kind of dynamism and the, the sociality that we're perhaps uh, realizing we can't take for granted anymore. Um, I think we might wrap things up there. We've taken up plenty of your time. Um, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, Tor. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask you, what are you working on now?
0: Yeah, at the moment, I'm um, working on uh, releasing my live coding software called Thranoscope. Um, I'm creating a web page for it, wrapping up some bugs or fixing some bugs and, and, and you know, making a standalone software that I can release. I've got some research papers that I, um, I'm i working on. Uh, one of them is about the Experimental Music Technologies Lab at Sussex. Uh, it's going to be part of the next NIME conference. Um, I'm also collaborating uh, with colleagues in Durham and Goldsmiths and at Sussex about uh, in a uh, research project called MIMIC, where we Uh, Create uh, a system where uh, creative coders and musicians can start to use machine learning as part of their um, musical practice. So we have a website called mimicproject.com. If you want to explore machine learning in music uh, through code, it's all online JavaScript um, system. And uh, we're working on a system called SEMA as part of this project that will be launched publicly soon, where you can create your own live coding language for machine learning. This is uh, taking quite a lot of my time. But of course, as I'm I'm the head of the music department at Sussex and this virus has um, put everything into chaos at the moment, so we're moving all our teaching to online tuition, uh submission is going to be online marking and so on so it's a huge task um so i'm i'm quite busy at the moment but i've got i've got another book that i'm planning um another book that i'm working on um doing the kind of literature review and early testing of ideas now but it's really too early to talk about that uh, at this moment
1: For sure. Well, I look forward to that when it comes out. Um, I'd like to thank you very much, Tor, for coming on the show today. It was really a pleasure to speak to you in what are difficult times. Thanks for your time, and I want to wish you the very, very best of luck with the current administrative um, wranglings, but also the more enjoyable future projects that you've described. I look forward to reading more of your work.
0: Oh, Thanks, Iman. It was really great to talk to you, too. I really had fun discussing these ideas with you. Uh, Brilliant chat. I wish you all the best too.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Take care and stay well. Okay.
0: Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.